Hi, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Biz, the Business Integrity School. And today we are very lucky to have with us a guest who got up quite early in the morning for him, John White, joining us from Hong Kong. Hi, John. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you, Cindy. Hello, everybody. Great. Well, let me first tell you all a little bit about John, and then we'll dive right into our topic for the season, which is all about ESG. So John has held senior leadership positions overseeing global supply chain compliance operations for more than 20 years now. He's had extensive experience developing supply chain compliance and anti-corruption programs for many of the largest consumer brands and retailers in the world. John has been the managing partner of Omega Compliance since its inception in 2005, and he continues to lead the company as its services grow even more. John's lived in Asia for over 30 years now, and he is fluent in Cantonese. He comes from a law enforcement background, having been a senior inspector with the Royal Hong Kong Police before entering the private sector. So, John, wow, that is a very interesting background. And I'm wondering if you might just want to spend a minute sharing with the audience how you got from law enforcement with the Hong Kong Police into uh, compliance. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, uh, I mean, firstly, when I, I mean, I came to Hong Kong in 1986. Uh, as you say, I was uh, at that time, Hong Kong was uh, still a British territory. Uh, so it was a great opportunity for me to see a bit of the world. I came out here on a three year contract, thinking I'll do three years and then go back to London, which is where I'm originally from. But I think I'd been here about a week, and I already knew I'd never leave. And oh, so wow. 30, 36 years later, I'm still here and uh, I absolutely love this uh, place and everything about it. But um, you know, uh, uh, working in law enforcement was was fantastic. Uh, I, I enjoyed every minute, but uh, an opportunity came around uh, for me to join a company in the private sector, and it was just uh, too good a chance to miss. I knew I wanted to stay in Hong Kong, so I uh, really uh, made that jump. And then I joined uh, a company called uh, William E. Connor and Associates in 1998. That's a very big sourcing uh, company representing many of the biggest brands in the world. And that was really the stepping stone. And uh, since then, I've focused on com- uh, supply chain and supply chain compliance uh, all that time and still learning, to be honest, maybe doing it for 20 years. But every single day, there's a new challenging, a new challenge. And uh, it's still very interesting. And uh, in terms of where our business is going, it's a real like yeah, exciting times for us. Very exciting times. And boy, if you've been in Hong Kong for so long, you have seen a fair amount of change, even in the territory itself, not to mention the supply chain compliance kind of area. I'm I'm sure you wake up every day to something new that uh, must have something to do with keeping you young. <laughs> well, thank you for saying that. Uh, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure about that last part, but uh, uh, yeah, I mean, Hong Kong is such a vibrant and exciting place. It's just, yeah. a, and, and, and it's a real nice place to, to have a family and all those other things that are so important in life. So yeah, we 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 we're really happy to be here. It's great. Oh, that that's just so interesting. So ESG, which is the topic of this season of the video podcast series, all things environmental, social, and governance compliance, uh, and compliance related in there, of course. Is, is a topic that has just exploded, I think, in the last several years. Um, but 
by and large, it, it used to be call it maybe something by another name. Maybe it was a little different, you know, CSR, it was just, you know, the, the social compliance, but it seems as though it has sort of taken center stage. And I guess my question to you from afar is whether or not you think this movement toward kind of stakeholder capitalism, ESG, uh, taking center stage, do you think that's here to stay? Do you feel it in Hong Kong as much as maybe we do here in the States? Um, well, I mean, a very direct answer to your question is yes, I do think it's to, to, it's here to stay. And and I think it's here to stay because to be, to be frank, companies really don't have a choice. I mean, they really need to uh, listen to their investors and listen to their uh, customers. And they are demanding that companies um, handle their and manage their supply chains in a very different way than they did uh, 20 years ago or even five years ago is my experience. And, um, you know, I, I come at it from a, at a very practical level um, there are people who will say that it's the right thing to do, which it is in terms of, you know, taking care of the environment, making sure workers are being treated properly and humanely. It is the right thing to do. And uh, to that end, you can appeal to the manufacturer's conscience and you can say this is the right thing to do. You're not handling this properly. And that's one way of working. But to be very frank, I don't think that's the most effective. The most effective way is always driven commercially. And mm -hmm. so if uh, an, an entity in the supply chain is motivated to make improvements and changes which help their workers, which improve um, their environmental footprint, et cetera, and there are commercial reasons for that, it's always the better way in my experience. I'm not saying that there aren't people who will listen to their conscience and want to do the right thing, but there, if there is a commercial reason for doing so, it just makes things a lot smoother. And uh, I really think that's, that's where things have moved on. I don't think uh, 10 years ago, we would have had a discussion about in investors. What, what do you think was the tipping point? You know, I don't think you can put your finger on uh, one thing. Um, I think it's been a gradual process over the years, but there have been a, a, a few things that, that have happened. I mean, it all started out in terms of mainstream was, was you know, going back more than 20 years, there was instances of child labor. There was a lot of attention on the working date conditions in certain countries, and that really got everything started. Right. But if you think about that, and even actually, if you take that forward to today and what you read about and what's on the news in terms of um, working conditions, there's still a big focus on certain categories. So um, this all started with sportswear manufacturing, um, uh. in particular apparel, but, you know, other items, too. Yes, and it did. And, and, you know, there's a great deal of sophistication in supply chains working for some of the brands who are focused on uh, sportswear apparel and accessories. And generally fashion brands and apparel brands are slightly ahead of other um, companies who are selling other consumer goods. 
now we're starting to see a shift, but there, there's a period where there has to be a catch up. So if uh, what I mean by that is, you know, factories who have been making apparel or footwear have been exposed to uh, their clients' compliance requirements for many years. Right. And so the conditions have improved and they've got much better. There are still improvements to be made, but you know, there's no doubt that things have got a lot better. But if you are a factory that's making uh, furniture, for example, it, it's only much more recently that they have had that exposure. And that type of client is now looking at the conditions in their factory. And so they have to catch up. And so mm -hmm. I think that, you know, it's quite, uh, it's, you can't really look at the whole spectrum of sourcing uh, and, and look at it in the same way. Um, you know, there are certain categories which are ahead and there are others which need to, to catch up. And, and I think that's what we're seeing now in terms of the progression. We're starting to see that catch up, which is, which is great, but, you know, there's a long way to go. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing that's changing, of course, is the geography and where companies are sourcing from. What do you think is driving, driving that change in location for where companies source from? Uh, well, there are two main drivers. The first one is price. <laughs> the, the first Obviously. one is always, always price. And, right. you know, companies are looking to make quality goods at uh, the cheapest possible price so they can get the best margins when they when they obviously sell it eventually mm -hmm. um, but the other thing which is now starting to have a big influence on on, on that is risk factors uh, i mean the, the best example right now is uh covid19 and how that has impacted supply chains um you know at one point uh it looked like that was going to be focused on certain geographies obviously now we know different and everyone right. has been impacted but you know that's the type of uh, risk that uh, companies look need to look at. Um, there's other instances where there's been quite a lot of, uh, in particular in uh, in Asia and Southeast Asia, there's been quite a lot of uh, political turbulence. And when that happens, you run the risk of uh, either a your supply chain not functioning properly because of what's happening in the country, or mm -hmm. b or B, being subject to intense scrutiny and criticism because you're sourcing from a country where the overall conditions um, are not very palatable for anybody. Right. And so you have, you have to take those risks on board as well. Yeah, especially in this world that we live in today, which is so different yeah. than where we were just a year ago or a year and a half Absolutely. ago now, you know, yeah. pre-COVID. Pre so... I love the perspective that that you and, and in the work that you do that you can bring to this conversation because what we're really doing in this season for the for the podcast video series is getting perspectives from those who are at different places in the sort of the links of the chain um, mm -hmm. of ESG and you and your company Omega play a very important role in the social auditing. Um, aspect for companies to be able to even know from a monitoring perspective, right? What yeah. kind of risks they have on the social side. So yeah. let, let me ask you then for your own opinion from having dealt with many, many manufacturers and, and, and other retailers, what do you think are some of the biggest risks in the supply chain? Um. 
You know, the, 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 the biggest risk that I see, and this might sound real simple, but we still see it, um, is companies simply not knowing where their products are being made. So the right. first step is to map the supply chain, which sounds simple, but very often isn't. Right. Um, because it may be that, you know, one item is being um, made in several locations. And so I think the big risk for companies is to not know where their, uh, where their products are being made. You have to map the supply chain. Only then can you go and actually look at the conditions on site. Right. So have you seen over the course of your work that in the, 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 expectation um, for how many steps back to go in the supply chain, if you will. Is that one of the changes you've seen more recently with this sort of ESG moment? I mean, you know, I listening to you and, and I think the audience can can grasp that there are steps in a supply chain, multiple, multiple steps mm. when you think about building the product, but that but that product is made up of components and the components come from raw materials. Yeah. So how far back do you do your audits go <laughs> well you know it's a really good question it's very topical um and it's coming to the fore right now for uh, a couple of reasons i mean if i can really talk to it on a very practical level if I, just to give you an example so that'd be great um so if you think about an umbrella so let's say we have a company that is selling an umbrella so they source that umbrella from a factory in a certain country now that umbrella has a fabric covering it has metal spokes it has a plastic handle it's wrapped in cellophane it's then put in a box so you already have four or five different steps in its production and it's very possible that each of those production steps is being done separately at different factory locations so now if you are a brand and you are bringing in that umbrella, you, you're making that umbrella to, to sell, you have to determine, okay, which is the primary manufacturing uh, factory? Right. Or actually, are they all part of that manufacturing? And do I need to audit potentially five different places? Now, if you're gonna audit all five places, then that's fantastic. I would applaud any company that tries to do that. But now you're talking about an extraordinary increase in cost for mm -hmm. that item. Somebody has to pay for those audits and the uh, ensuing follow-up. The other right. things you need to consider is what is the item? Is it, for example, is that umbrella a toy umbrella, which is gonna go to children, which now ramps up your risk even more. Even more. So there, yeah. are so many, there are so many considerations to, to, to look at in terms of you know, what, uh, you know how the product is made how many steps are there and right now the other thing which is uh, really promoting scrutiny in this area is the legislation which is mm. the recent legislation linked to forced labor mm. and of course that does not say okay uh, it's not focused on forced labor in a primary factory it's it's looking at the potential for forced labor anywhere Mm -hmm. And it right. puts the it puts the onus on the importer to ensure that there's no forced labor across the whole supply chain. So right. everybody is looking at that right now. Uh, we're in discussions with 
uh, all of our clients who all want to ensure they don't have forced labor in sure. their supply chains. We right. already look, we already look for that and try to identify that. It's right. just that the, uh, the scope is broadening very quickly. And I don't see that changing. In your audits, I mean, you just think about explaining to our audience how those are actually done. Is it mm. all manual? Do you use technology at all? Yeah, we, uh, it's, Primarily manual. I mean, uh, there are two types of um, assessment. Uh, there are some companies who will provide what is often called a desk audit or an online assessment. And essentially that means looking at the paperwork, looking at the systems. Um, that's really not our forte. Um, our forte is going and seeing where the product's being made. Yeah. And because we want to we want to see the conditions on site, which you can't right. see when you're looking at paperwork in an That's office. Right. We That's want to right. go to the factory and we want to see the workers working. We mm. want to see the conditions within which they're working. And most importantly of all, we want to conduct interviews with those uh, workers. Yeah. And so part of that, part of the assessment is that we not the not the factory management, we select the workers that we're going to, we want to speak to. And then we speak to them privately without any representation from the, uh, from the factory. And obviously our teams are very um, experienced and Mm -hmm. and, uh, trained in terms of how to have those discussions. And we want the workers to open up and tell us what the conditions are on site. The other big component of uh, an on, of uh, an onsite assessment is looking at the, at looking at the payroll, looking at right. the working hours, yep. uh, looking at those issues to make sure um, that the workers are being treated fairly and properly in line with uh, local laws. Right, and right. The first thing we want to benchmark is always local law. So it's a very intense yeah. exercise. There are some things which are really critical in making sure that the audit is done um, effectively one of those is that we don't announce our audit date so the factory doesn't know when we're coming so there's no way for them to um to prepare as they yeah. might want to do right um and the other thing is in terms of getting um you know you ask about technology uh, we're exploring that right now in terms of those worker interviews and how actually we can continue to communicate with workers using certain apps so if a worker is reluctant to come into a room and talk to us because they are a little bit fearful of repercussions from what they might say, uh, we're actually exploring now the possibility of, um, you know, having uh, voice hotlines or message hotlines that are workers. I think it's really, really at the start of exploring how technology can support us. But whatever happens, whatever happens, I, I think that always it's not going to replace going on site and seeing the actual conditions for ourselves. And I feel very strongly about that. Right. It just seems to me that as the expectations on companies continue to increase further Mm -hmm. up the supply chain, you know, for example, all the way back to raw materials and in your example, umbrellas, maybe they Mm -hmm. are all considered, you know, main factories and there isn't a main factory. That's going to drastically increase the amount of inspections that need to be done somewhere in there. I would seem to think that technology ought to be able to help um, in some regards and, you know, be, be people led obviously with, with onsite inspections, but uh, be able to, 
be more efficient and effective with it. One of the questions I had for you is how do you handle the language barrier? Because I would imagine that you have um, uh, uh, workers in some of those factories from oftentimes many different countries, different, you know, different nationalities. And, and um, so you may have sent an auditor who, who only speaks, you know, Cantonese, for example. So what, what do you, yeah. how do you handle that? What do you do in that situation? Yeah, that's a challenge. I mean, very often we will, and most of the, we will try to get an indication of, uh, you know, what, um, what nationality of worker is in the, is working in the factory before we go. But sometimes it's not even that. I mean, within China, you have so many different dialects uh, and within other countries too. Sometimes yeah. you have different dialects. So it might not even be a different nationality. It might be just someone from a different province or from a different area who uh, is comfortable speaking in one language, language and not another. Um, so we'll try to research that in advance. But also we, again, through experience, we know the locations where there's a lot of migrant workers so we sort of know what's what's coming yeah. and uh for them if we need to we will arrange a translator uh, yeah. and we can do that in two ways we can have a translator actually accompany us to the auditor which is always our preference um if we know that there's going to be that issue before we go to the factory but you know in in some occasions where we don't know in advance and we come across a situation like that then we actually have an established um, communication line with a service provider who can actually do that via a telephone so that right. we can understand what they're saying. Now, that's not ideal. Uh, it really doesn't mm, promote a good flow in terms of discussions with workers. Right. Right. Uh, but it's, right. at least then we are able to get, um, you know, their, their, hear their opinions and their comments. Uh, but that's really rare. Most of the time we will... Um, be able to arrange uh, interpreters to come with us in advance of going on site. Got it. So you've been doing these social compliance audits for a while now, many, many years. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and you look at, you know, many issues that you've already mentioned, like the uh, uh, wage and hour, um, mm. you know, books and, and making sure the workers are getting paid right. I'm sure you've got, you know, child safety um, as well as child labor issues. So if you had to rank the risks in, in your mind of what is, you know, the social compliance issues that raise the most concerns for you and your team, mm -hmm. what, what would they be? You know, that, that's a, it's a, it's, it's a conversation that we have with our clients all the time. And one of the complaints, which, uh, so I'm going around in a bit of a wide circle to answer your question, but I think it's important just to give you the background. But yeah. one of the complaints that factories have and have had for many, many years is that, um, and I have some sympathy with them on this, in that, okay, today they are undergoing an audit by Omega. Uh, maybe tomorrow they undergo an audit by somebody else That's right. or a different client. Right. And the assessment is going to differ based on the criteria that the client has directed the audit company to, to use. And it may be that the emphasis is on payroll, or it may be that the emphasis on working hours. And the way we report back is going to be in line with our client expectations. So as a result of that, you have a certain amount of audit fatigue amongst the manufacturers yeah. who would much rather there be... Uh, one way of doing the assessment and one way of reporting it. So that way they only have to undergo one audit. 
But the reality is that that's not going to happen because if you think about uh, the brands and the retailers who are uh, directing that these audits and ultimately paying for these audits, they all have different risk profiles. So True. if you are the biggest company in the world making the most money, logically you're going to be a bigger target than a much smaller company who no one's ever heard of, but is perhaps sourcing from the same locations. And you're, the way you want the audit to be conducted and reported is going to be slightly different because it may be that you see payroll as the biggest item, whereas another company sees uh, health and safety in the workplace as the biggest, most important item. So it really differs. In terms of my own opinion, um, uh, you know, I, I, it's really hard for me to rank them that way, but I think that there are certain risks that we always look for. One is obviously child labor. If we, if right. we see the potential for underage workers, that's a big concern. Another one is forced labor. So if we see that, for example, passports are being held or right. we see there's no freedom of movement, um, then that's a big concern. And the other one is actually uh, overall safety of the building mm -hmm. and making sure that it's structurally sound, which yeah. is a real tough one because we're not structural engineers. Right. Um, but if we right. walk around, a, we, we walk around a building and we and we don't feel our safe ourselves to be in that building, then of course, we need to really address that issue. Right. So that really came to the fore uh, quite a few years ago. There was a terrible incident in Bangladesh. Bangladesh. Where, where Rana Plaza, Rana Plaza and right. the building collapsed. There were many people killed in that incident. I think it was and over it really a thousand. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot. Uh, it, it, was, it, was, uh, it really highlighted the, the dangers that you know, structural issues can uh, compose. So yeah, I think those are the things that we really, uh, really set off alarm bells for us when we find them. Yeah. So uh, moving past social, given that this is ESG uh, and that your, your roots are in social, I, I wonder, have companies started to approach you about doing any audits beyond that while you are there? For example, in the environmental space. The environmental piece is really interesting, um, and it's actually not a new conversation for us. We've been talking with companies about um, looking at the environmental impact of their supply chain factories for many, many years. Um, but there's, there's always been a sort of, no one sort of has known what to do, actually. To, uh, uh, more recently, there's been some success. So there is uh, an initiative called the um, called the SAC, they have a certain... What does that stand um, for, a, the SAC? Uh, the Sustainable Apparel Coalition. Okay. So that's a group of, a group of companies who came to, and, and interested parties who came together many years ago to formulate standards and minimum standards and to address environmental concerns. Right. Um, it's really progressed a lot. It's a real leader in the field. They have developed uh, something called the HIG tool, uh, please don't ask me what HIG stands for. I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> but the HIG tool is a way to assess the uh, environmental uh, impact of their of their supply chains and themselves, uh, and that requires going on site and looking at factories. The big issue we have, to be honest, is uh, again it comes down to is a commercial is a commercial issue in that um, right now 
when we go and uh, evaluate a factory for social compliance, we have skilled auditors who can do that. Right. So if we want to go and assess the um, the air emission, the noise emission, the water discharge uh, at a factory, we would need to use engineers, qualified engineers to do that type of work, which yeah. is really expensive. It's really Fair. expensive. And it's and a different so skill set. It's, it's, it's a, a different, different skill set. set. Yeah. yeah, it's not the, it's yeah, yeah. it's not the, it's not our existing teams. Uh, we would need to hire um, engineers who are qualified and capable of doing that type of work, and we're very able to do that. Uh, I've had many discussions and said we're quite willing to invest in that and to put together the expertise and the teams we need, uh, but it's expensive, and so far. Um, companies don't have the appetite to take that on board at the moment now the ones that we work for those that that do are really very big and uh perhaps their exposure in terms of environmental issues is much greater than some of the others plus and i think this is a really important point um it really depends on the uh, challenges facing the particular company if mm. the company has a very stable supply base so let's say, for example, they use 100 factories across, um, across their supply chain. Right. And then every year, uh, one or two of those factories change, but it's pretty stable. Right. And they have very long-term relationships with those manufacturers. In that instance, it makes sense to invest and to ensure that the manufacturers meet certain rules in terms of uh, environmental conditions. But if your supply chain... Uh, uses 600 factories and many of our clients have that scenario right and 30 percent of those factories change every year because this year it's a different fashion they want a different shape a different right. color a different whatever and so you've got that 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 constant churn in terms of the factories they use very difficult for them to invest that much money uh knowing that probably next season i need a different factory yes and so we'll have to start all over again so there are a right. lot of a lot of things to consider uh, on the environmental piece, but but you know, let me just you know, at the end of that, I, I would also say it's on the agenda now. It never used to be, right. really, and I do see that things are improving. And I think, much like social compliance, it will come to a point where companies are uh, really don't have a choice but to take this on board and uh, make things better. So right. let's hope, it, I'm optimistic. I think the whole area is really exploding and you've got the expectation on companies now to be able to report out on their ESG metrics, likely gonna be moving into a, a, a regulated space at some point in time with some standards on how to do that. So it really shines, in my opinion, a very, uh, strong spotlight, if you will, on the work that that companies like Omega does, because the the companies are going to have to be able to get the corporations have to report get that data from a third party um, service provider provider perspective. What we hope is that there is there are standards which we can apply that are agreed. exactly. I mean, when we measure a fa factory for social compliance, we are essentially benchmarking the conditions in that factory against the local laws primarily uh -huh. Uh -huh. there are certain other expectations which our clients have which uh which, which extend extend you know exceed the local laws potentially right. but right. those are fairly uh you know they're not so extensive 
Um, but once you start talking about environmental performance or non-performance, yeah. um, you know, is that going to be us benchmarking against local laws or is that going to be against international standards? Or, right. So that's going to get more complex. So there needs to be a framework within which we can work. Well, John, <laughs> this has been a fascinating conversation. Really, really helpful, I think, in just explaining kind of that step in the, in the process for um, companies being able to eventually report out on their ESG metrics. So thank you. And I always like to leave the audience with one uh, or two resources resources uh, that they can use to dig a little further. And so I like to ask all of my guests, what is a good show you've watched or something you've read recently, or maybe a podcast you listen to that you think um, our audience might find useful if they wanted to learn more about ESG? Uh, I thought about this quite a lot, rather than me say, okay, read this book or watch that program. Uh, I think that you learn the most um, by looking at, this might sound simple, but looking at companies' published reports, like uh, which sounds pretty dry and boring, I know. But um, what I mean by that is look at the published reports and actually look at the detail in terms of what they say. Um, so are the policies which they are promoting on their website or wherever else, are they aspirational? or are they real? Because there's a big difference between the two. So actually, if you look at all the big brands and all the big retailers, and if you uh, go on their websites, you look at their codes of conduct and everything else. If you print them all out and put them next to each other, they look very similar, actually. There aren't that many differences between them. However, how they implement is totally different. And there are clues as to how a company works based on uh, how they word those policies. And mm -hmm. I think that if you, uh, because I'm such a, I'm, I'm a real practical person. I think having the data is so important. It's all right. very well saying, oh, we do A, B, and C. All our factories are perfect and all the workers are happy. Well, show me. Where's right. the data that supports that claim? That's and right. uh, uh, I think that if you look at some of the bigger companies, you'll find it quite interesting if you, um, if you do that. So sorry, that's a bit of a cheating answer, but I think that's the best advice I can give Cindy. I like that. And you know, that's a good place to, for, I think for the audience to go because transparency is becoming incredibly important these days. Yes. And yes. so go take a look at the companies and see if they really are being transparent and what they're sharing. So that's great. Well, John, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. And, um, Hopefully we will be able to get together at some point soon post COVID, but this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you. Well, thank you, Cindy. It's a great opportunity for me and thank you for everybody um, for, for listening to us today. Absolutely. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.